welcome to my mommy's podcast. This podcast is brought to you by SteadyMD. I've been using this company for the past year and I love them. Here's how it works. Instead of having a primary doctor that you have to make an appointment to see, wait for hours in the office to visit, you can now have your doctor available whenever you need him or her through your phone. SteadyMD has a staff of doctors who are available via call, text, or video chat whenever you need them so they respond quickly and they already know your medical history. You get paired with a single doctor so you can work with them as a long-term partner for your health. They're well-versed in lab testing, preventative health, and functional medicine, and they are great for those random, obscure, off-hours medical questions so you don't have to run to urgent care. You can check them out and see if they are right for you by visiting steadymd.com forward slash WM. That's S-T-E-A-D-Y-M-D.com forward slash WM. They do have limited spots available, so I check them out quickly if you're interested. This episode is brought to you by Crunchy Betty. It's summer and where I am, it is super hot and humid. I've always made my own deodorant and I still think that's an amazing option. It works well, but lately I've been so busy that I've been turning to a pre-made natural deodorant and I am loving it. It's called Kokomo Cream and it smells like a tropical vacation. Think coconut and lime and paradise. And it works incredibly well. My husband uses it too. We both love the scent and we love how fresh we stay all day. My favorite part, it's from a small family business and you can only find it right now on Etsy. So you can find it by going to etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash crunchy Betty. Again, etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash crunchy Betty. Welcome to the Healthy Moms Podcast. I'm Katie from wellnessmama.com and you are going to find today's episode fascinating because it's one of with one of the most fascinating people I have met in recent years. Eric has been practicing big law for over 30 years, but for the last 20, his passion has been all things related to wellness. Prior to moving to Los Angeles or from New York to Los Angeles in 1995, probably two of the highest stress places in the world, he went from a work hard, play hard, cigarette smoking Wall Street lawyer to a gym rat and then now a serious biohacker. The transition started in earnest in 1997 when he became the investor partner in a holistic center with the doctor of Chinese medicine. His passion continued and he was, or so he thought, the healthiest 59-year-old on the planet. But all of that changed in June of 2016 when he was diagnosed with an advanced stage prostate cancer. This pushed him even deeper into his passion for health and wellness. He did an incredible deep dive into all things related to cancer, from the causes to the therapies to the interventions. And his ability to take that big picture perspective of a complex disease and filter out uh, all the noise is amazing. That's why I can't wait to talk to him today because while he doesn't like to use the word cure, um, since his view is more of a matter of a healing state, we're going to go into that a lot, but he was declared to be in intermission seven months after his first diagnosis, which is incredible, uh, very rare, and super fascinating. I recently met Eric at an event, and I knew I had to have him here. I think you will find his story and his insights incredibly fascinating. I know I did. So Eric, welcome, and thanks for being here. Thank you, Katie. It's my pleasure. It was a pleasure meeting you, and I'm so happy to be able to uh, speak to you and your audience. I think your story is truly going to help thousands and thousands of people. And I mentioned some of it in your bio. Um, I know there's a lot more to it than that. So I'd love to hear your uh, story in your own words of your journey and how you got to this point, because it's not too often that I see someone who is a practicing lawyer with a super successful practice and also has like a health and wellness blog and career on the side and is helping people in two different areas. So how did you get here? Well, yeah, that's, that's, it's been an interesting journey. You know, I, I, um, 
when I lived in New York, of course, you know, the lifestyle there is kind of um, very much uh, dictated by your career path. And, and so I kind of fall, fell into that trap and, you know, worked very, very hard and spent all, most of my time, my waking hours are spent either socializing with work colleagues or working and just doing everything you could possibly do to be unhealthy. You know, I know you mentioned smoking. I was a heavy drinker. I was, you know, not getting enough sleep. I was a little overweight. I was full of stress. It just was a mess. And it really was, I think I went through some sort of kind of midlife crisis and decided I need to try to be more healthy. And I quit smoking. And after moving to Los Angeles and taking the California bar, I discovered that I could take the time that I was using to study for the bar every day and use that to kind of really kind of change my physique. And I became very obsessed with the whole men's health diet and, the, and working out. And I was a gym rat for a long time, going to the gym every single day. And I, you know, I got to be, obviously, for the first time in my life, I got to be toned and physically fit, and uh, which was wonderful. But I was plagued with these chronic health conditions that just, just wouldn't go away. And I'd seen several doctors, and they had run batteries of tests. And they literally told me, Yoki, you just have to learn to live with this. Things like a chronic cough that, was, that went on for years and years. And uh, it was really kind of, you know, I got exposed to this doctor of Chinese medicine and acupuncturist plus. I mean, he did more than just acupuncture. Uh, through a class I was taking at the local YMCA, and I was so an, um, taken, I was so enamored by his a treatment protocol and how he was able to address my chronic conditions effectively that when he asked if I would be interested in opening a center together, I said yes, and I invested, and we opened this holistic center, and that's where I kind of got down this, started getting down this path where we're recognizing that there's a lot more to health than just uh, you know pharmaceuticals and you know eating a low fat you know, high protein and exercise a lot, which was kind of my lifestyle. And I, um, you know, the, the further I went down that rabbit hole, I'm sure a lot of your uh, listeners and your other guests probably have had similar experiences. The further I went down that rabbit hole, the more I wanted to learn. And it just has been kind of an obsessive, uh, it's been able to satisfy my obsessive compulsive disorder. And I just continued to go down that, that path. And I just, I just had a passion for it. I, particularly on the nutrition side, because obviously when it comes to kind of putting food together to eat, it's very creative and it's immediate. You do it every day and you get to enjoy it. And it's, it's not like some of the longer term things you get, benefits you get from meditation and some of these other wellness things. And so that continued uh, really for quite a period of time. And I went through several different dietary regimes. I was, I was vegan for a while. I went raw vegan for a while. I went, I actually went into this kind of raw omnivore diet, which is a little crazy that this guy, Ogenus Vanderplanets promoted and did that for a little while, which is kind of raw dairy, raw meat, raw honey, raw, you know, raw eggs. And then I kind of stumbled into the paleo space and felt that that kind of was most suited to me. And I really felt good. And I, and I evolved from my gym rat status into more of a yogi. And I did some interval training and I just, you know, I just felt great and I looked great and I was healthy and, you know, I was a picture of perfect health. And then when I was at the Paleo FX conference in 2016, I, you know, as, as that conference was winding down, I started having some difficulty urinating and some um, spasms in my bladder. And I thought, oh, this is, this must be because I was kind of a little overzealous. And there was an electrostimulation device on the exhibition hall floor that I, that I wanted to show off and I had to mount it to my lower abs and turn it on full blast. And and I was dying when they were, when I was standing there with the machine on, but I thought I couldn't, you know, I, I just was showing off and it thought, well, okay, that's probably what the problem is. But when I got back to LA a week later, it continued. So I said, I better see a doctor. So I went to see a doctor really for the first time in 10 years because I was far too healthy to even need a doctor. 
And at that point, it became apparent that there were some real serious issues with my prostate. Uh, and so the original doctor did a digital exam and, and, and PSA and my PSA was very high. It was 21.1. And he sent, he, he suggested a urologist. And I, so I saw a urologist and he did a whole battery of tests on me and including bone scans and, and CT scans and, and MRIs. And it really was the biopsy all that time. I was kind of convincing myself that what I had was, was, um, BPH, benign prostate hyperplasia because I just was too healthy a guy to have cancer. That just wasn't in the cards. And of course, when I got the phone call and he said, not only do you have cancer, you have an extremely aggressive form of cancer, which prostate cancer generally doesn't have this same level of aggression. It was Gleason score nine. And that just kind of was a real, it just, it completely stopped my world. I just was completely shocked by that. And initially I kind of went through a, funk and poor me and cried and thought my world was ending and I had wasted all my time being healthy and I should have just continued smoking and enjoying pizza and, and hamburgers from fast food restaurants. And then I kind of, kind of recognized that this was an opportunity for me to take what has been my passion for the last, at that point, 18 years and really do a deep dive. This was, I mean, my life was at stake and I was going to not screw around. And this is something that I could really sink my teeth into. And I was fortunate in that, you know, I'm at a, I work at a big law firm and my partner said, you know, Eric, I told him my condition. They said, do whatever you need to do. So I took some time off from work and I just dove in and I just really did as deep a dive as I could in as short a period of time as I could. Um, you know, I read 17 books in the first 21 days. I, you know, my thought process was I really need to come to an understanding of the nexus of, of the disease before I could decide on how best to address my condition. In other words, I need to understand what the causes were before I can understand, uh, before I can really kind of jump into the treatments and protocols. And so that's kind of where I started, but it's, and it's kind of fortuitous because before I even got too deep down that rabbit hole, I, I, I did a 10 day water fast and I didn't start off intending to do a 10 day water fast. I started off intending to do the master cleanse for 10 days because I read a book on prostate health. And in the book, he recommends you do if you want to have a healthy prostate. And I, at the time, I didn't know I had cancer. I just knew I had problems with my prostate. And so I bought, you know, the, I don't know, I'm sure you have heard of the master cleanse and you're well aware of it. And most of your listeners might be as well. You know, it's lemon juice and cayenne pepper and, and maple syrup. And of course, the latter is what really kind of put it off put it off for me because I tried it for half a day and I just went into sugar shock because I had been in ketosis at that point. And uh, so I decided rather than trying to do the master cleanse, I really should just do a water fast. That would just kind of just reset everything. And so I did that. That's kind of how I got started. But anyway, so yeah, that's kind of the story in a nutshell. Um, and, you know, I can talk a little bit if you like about kind of the causes of theories about cancer or kind of what I came to, because that was, as I mentioned, the first part of this whole process was trying to come to determinations where I thought cancer, how cancer got originated in the first place. And boy, oh boy, that was probably, I thought the most interesting and challenging of, of this process, because it, it required me to come to a determination as to whether or not I was going to side with the, uh, Tom Seafried cancers, metabolic disease, the Otto Warburg theory which we can talk about, um, or whether it was going to be more the traditional, you know, it's a defect in the, new, in the DNA. 
or the nucleus of the cell. And so it was, it was, uh, it could be addressed through kind of more traditional therapies. Yeah. I'd love to go deep on, to go deep on that. And basically kind of your theories, because the night we met, we talked about this for a really long time. And I think it was the most logical and comprehensive explanation I've ever heard. Um, and I'd love for you to kind of go deep on your theories. I think you have a very unique perspective, but also before we um, you move on, I just want to say that that's amazing. I have so much respect for your mindset um, in both acknowledging that even though you were doing so many healthy things, um, like acknowledging that obviously there was more to the picture because um, I think we can get so easily stuck in our dogma of what we think we're doing is right. And you overnight had to question everything and like reevaluate. Um, but also just how you jumped into the research and didn't just decide that you were going to roll over and take this, that you, um, I mean, that's amazing the amount of information you took in. So I'd love to go deep on that. Like um, kind of explain to me, explain to everyone what you explained to me about uh, what you, what your theories are about the true causes of cancer. Sure. Okay. Um, just quickly, for those who, who are not familiar with the two, two alternative competing theories, and there's some kind of subsets to that, you know, that there's some fungal connection, et cetera. But I, I view the, the kind of main, the main field, uh, you know, medical field uh, theories of cancer to fall into two, two baskets or two ca camps. And the big one, obviously, is the, is the standard of care, allopathic, traditional MD approach. Your oncologist has been trained in, in oncology practice to follow this path. And that is the cancer is caused by a defect in the DNA, that somehow the DNA stops, stops doing its job properly and that creates this kind of situation where the cancer cells start to pro pro proliferate and, and um, they, they no longer differentiate or de-differentiate the way they, traditional cells should. Um, and the second theory was actually way before we even knew the DNA existed, uh, the Nobel laureate Otto Warburg got the Nobel Prize back in the 1930s because he discovered then that all cancer cells had a very similar condition, and that is they, um, they converted from the traditional form of energy production, which is respiration, where you know, ATP is created through kind of burning of oxygen and the creation of, I'm sorry, um, you know, it's, it's, yeah, burning of oxygen, but it creates water and CO2 in that process. And when it can no longer do that, it reverts to kind of a prehistoric form of energy production, which is fermentation or the burning of glucose and the creation of lactic acid. Those are completely different methods of energy production. So the cells really kind of, kind of go from, if I can use an analogy, you know, it's, it's like your car suddenly stops burning gas and now wants to burn electricity. It's just completely different. And, um, and so this was kind of this was kind of the view until the DNA was discovered. And when the when the discovery of the DNA occurred, of course, you know everything, all the money and all the you know the Nixon declared the war on cancer in the 1970s. And since then, we've been spending hundreds and hundreds of billions of dollars trying to kind of chase down some sort of pattern within the defect in the DNA theory that would allow a cure to be found. And I and I've always kind of viewed that as being a little silly because cancer to me was was more of a chronic condition than an acute condition. So the, the idea of there being a, some sort of magic bullet just didn't quite fit the paradigm. So I was always kind of, I think, inclined to view it more along the, it's a defect in respiration than it's something that you can just point a, a silver bullet at and fix. So when I discovered kind of Warburg's theory, it made sense to me, but then I, and then I read the work of Tom Seafreeth and Travis Christopherson and others who have, I think Travis's book, Tripping Over the Truth, Truth, is probably the best book to kind of do a general overview of the history of cancer and, and, and etymology and how the science has developed and evolved. But 
I think the most telling thing for me, and as an attorney, I'm always looking at evidence in context, and, and I look at those two to try to decide what makes the most sense, is that studies were done where they took the nucleus of a cancer cell and they inserted that nucleus in the cytoplasm of a normal cell that had its nucleus removed. And when this reconstituted cell was then injected into mice, I think there were like 68 mice, only one of them over one year period had any cancer condition at all. In other words, the healthy mitochondria in those cells had effectively prevented the disease from occurring. And another university did the same study and none of the mice got cancer. But then what they did was they ran the exact same experiment in reverse where they took the nucleus of a healthy cell and inserted it into the cytoplasm of a tumor cell that had its nucleus removed and almost 100% of those mice got cancer. So to me, that is, that is pretty strong evidence. <laughs> if you need strong evidence, which I was kind of looking for, but I certainly it hit me in the face, that this was a, this was a metabolic problem and not a DNA. In other words, any evidence of DNA defect was really not the cause of cancer, but kind of was caused by cancer, okay? It was, just, it was something that occurred after the, the, the initial condition occurred. And so that, that made perfect sense to me. Of course, being an attorney, I then had to deep, do a little bit of a deeper dive, which, which, I mean, I don't think there's many, many people that have kind of gone in, down this path. It might sound a little bit crazy, but I think wanted to ask the second question was just, okay, fine. So it's a respiratory issue. What caused the, the defect in respiration in the first place? I mean, how did you go from healthy respiration to, you know, this, this fermentation process where the cells are no longer respirating properly, but uh, proliferating and generating energy through um, fermentation? And I think to kind of understand that, I, I really had to rely a lot on, on my own, I don't know, I, I, there's, there's not a lot of science in the space. And the science that I did find is obviously not, it's not clinical science, but I did find some pretty strong indicators. Part of that, I think, or my overlay on that was from my understanding of how the qi works within the, the tenets of traditional Chinese medicine. In other words, Qi, which is Q-I, but it's pronounced Qi, is, is really the all, all life form. It's all the energy of all life, right? So the acupuncture meridians that get manipulated by an acupuncturist is just, was just one, one area where there's Qi flowing. And when the Qi stops flowing, you end up with stagnation. And you can have blockages. We have an excess on one side of the blockage and a deficiency on the other. But that in and of itself could create a... Um, hypoxic environment and, you know, reduce the amount of oxygen available to the cells and then the cells would revert to this form of, of, of energy production. And also, I think it's just as a footnote, and this I find fascinating, is that all forms of life on the planet that existed uh, before there was oxygen produced energy through fermentation. That was just how it was done. And so what your cells are doing when you have this conversion from a healthy cell to a cancerous cell is they're basically just reverting to kind of a prehistoric form of energy production, which I find kind of, it's almost like the cells kind of just to survive. If you, if you deprive them, if you put them in a hypoxic condition, then they will, you know, they'll, they'll then revert that. And of course now you have cancer, right? And we're going to talk a little bit about, you know, cancer versus can cancering that leads up to the condition of cancer. The, so there was, a, there was that whole thing about qi, but there's also the work of this guy um, named Wilhelm Reich, who I really did a lot of research on. He's written several books, and he was actually around about the same time as Otto Warburg. They actually knew each other. And 
he found what he called, because he did a lot of studies into, uh, into cancer too, because he was interested in kind of the source of life. He's the guy who, who, who got in trouble because he created this concept of the organ, which comes from the word orgasm, which of course back in the 30s didn't win him any favors in the, in the mainstream media of the establishment. But his view was that all life forms needed to go through this kind of um, redox or, or, or pulse right? From the cell level to the heart level, to the peristosis level, to, you know, to, to the autotomic nervous system. And that whenever someone has cancer, there's a kind of biopathic shrinking. In other words, you're no longer, your autonomic nervous system is no longer ebbing and flowing. And I, I don't want to get too off track on this because we could probably do a whole podcast just on that. But suffice it to say that he did discover that, you know, that there are two different kind of forms of life. He called them T-bacilli, and, uh, which is kind of uh, the healthy form of life. And then there's, um, oh boy, I can't think of the second life form right now. It slips mine. Oh, the PA bions. I'm sorry, the T-bacilli are the, are the re- degenerative. The PA bions are the organ energy vesicles, he called them. And that's what you want in order to have lice. And, they, and you get that. He would actually be able to take pictures of it. He was a, he was a real techno geek. Um, but he said you can get the organ from sun, food, water, and oxygen. These are all sources of organ, which is this kind of life form that he said was in everything. Anyway, so I took those two, those two things as an overlay. I said, okay, so there's some sort of energetic blockage occurring that's causing my PA bions to kind of, this, this, these very primordial protozoal formations to become T bacilli and shrinking of the life apparatus. So I need to kind of address that. So with this entire overlay, I then say, okay, now I can step back and decide what exactly should I be doing to address, to, do, to address my condition? And the first thing I think anybody needs to do, and I'm sure one of the questions that your listeners have, because I get it all the time, is, you know, what's the first thing I should do? What should, you know, what, what should I be doing? And, and it's obviously, there's no like one thing that I can say, because everyone's different, and they're coming from a different place. But I spent you know, the next phase of my process was then to interview doctors and try to get a team together that I could work with. Because I, I wanted to have a traditional oncologist on the team. I needed to have those options in my arsenal. I didn't want to exclude that. But I also needed to have a good integrative doctor. And obviously, because I had prostate cancer, I needed a urologist as well. And so with once I got that team together, and I, and I of course, I did my I did a lot of stuff on my own based on my studies involving nutrition. You know, I was ketogenic for six months before I got diagnosed. So, I mean, I was really, I was totally clean. People who think they can just eat clean food and not get cancer, I think, are at least in my experience, you know, that's not that there's no, there's no magic there. I think it, it does, I think have a tendency to keep your health levels up, which is what helped me overcome the cancer quickly. So I'm not saying it's not a good idea to do, to keep your healthy systems working as, as best as best you can. Well, and I'm curious, so how did you go from, I mean, this amazing body of research and these theories of cancer um, to actually deciding what your own protocol was going to be? I agree with you. It seems like if anything, all the research in any aspect of health right now is pointing to how it needs to be personalized and varied. And there's so many different aspects that go into that based on our genes and our lifestyle and all the inputs. But how did you decide what protocols to use when you started jumping into that? Well, I kind of thought, okay, this is my thought process there. One, one of the things is I do think Western medicine is extremely effective at acute conditions. So 
the first thing anyone needs to do is say, do I have an acute condition? I mean, if, the, if you have a tumor cell that's cutting off the oxygen supply to your brain or the blood supply to your brain or whatever, stopping your digestion, then you don't just go do a bunch of Chinese herbs. There's definitely a, a place for, for traditional medicine. And I'm not saying no one should do chemotherapy. No one should do radiation. I'm not saying that. I'm not a doctor and I don't, I don't give medical advice. And I tell people, talk to your doctor and, and see what your options are. But my general kind of overlay on deciding what the right therapeutic interventions would be and my you know, lifestyle protocols would be were based on a few tenets. One is that I think oxygenation is this kind of use of oxidative therapy where I kind of create a high oxygen stress environment in my body would be a way of getting this benefit similar to chemotherapy without doing chemotherapy. In other words, I was going to create a condition where it would put a stress on the cancer cells, but at the same time, it would strengthen and help my healthy cells the mito and the mitochondria in my healthy cells. And I know when people think of oxidants, they think it's, uh, you know, it's negative and everything should be antioxidants. But I think if, if, you're, if you're addressing cancer, you really want to find the right balance. And obviously, the last thing you should be doing is, is a ton of antioxidants if you're doing any kind of oxidative stress therapies because it's kind of defeating the purpose. So, so there were several different kind of therapies or, or therapeutic interventions that fell into that category of, of oxygenation or oxidation. And one is hyperbaric, which I, you, you may or may not know that that's kind of, I think, I think Don Diagostino and Tom Seafried talk a lot about the use of hyperbaric oxygen in conjunction with a ketogenic diet, mostly for the blastomas. But I think based on my, the anecdotal evidence from all the people that I've talked to, of course, there's been no clinical trial work on this. So I have to base it solely on my own experience and those of others. Um, if, if there's metastases involved, which I had because the cancer had spread outside the prostate into the bones and the lymph nodes, anytime you have a metastatic condition, I think it's a good idea to get into a hyperbaric chamber to to turn the table on that because otherwise you run the risk it'll continue to spread throughout your body and because it's in your bloodstream and it's circulating you want to get you want to get as much of that shut down as quickly as possible and to me one way to do that was to get into a hyperbaric chamber so i started doing hyperbaric three times a week and then i i i, I kind of phase it out and now i do it you know twice a month um just as kind of a prophylactic and uh i think so Anytime I meet somebody who has metastatic issues, I said, you should at least try hyperbaric if you if you're not, don't get claustrophobic. As a footnote, I don't think the soft-sided chambers do much. You got to get into a hyperbaric center that has um, the hard-sided chambers so you can go to the full 2.4 atmospheres, which you can't get close to that in the soft-sided chambers. And fortunately, I live in an area where we have a few centers that some areas I know the country don't have very many. And so that was one. Another is ozone. There's there's several ways you can get ozone into your system. There's two primary ways. One is through the blood where they take some blood out of your, out of your body and they, and they inject ozone into it, ozone the gas. And then they, they put the blood back into your body and that kind of gets the ozone into your bloodstream. Because I had prostate cancer, I was doing at rectal insufflation ozone, which is, you know, it's gas that you, um, you put into a, to a plastic bladder and you just squeeze it into your rectum and then you just hold it as long as you can. And that's a way of getting ozone through the rectum into, in as close as you can to your prostate. And the, and the reason why I thought, I mean, ozone obviously is similar to the other oxidative stresses, right? Ozone is, is basically just a supercharged oxygen. That molecule has three atoms of oxygen instead of two. And, you know, the, that extra atom breaks off and 
inside the body. And, and there was a study done in 1980 that showed that exposure to ozone really had a tremendous inhibitory effect on cancer cell growth because the cancer cells as fungus and, and Lyme disease, a lot of things there are, um, you know, ozone is very therapeutic for. So I thought, okay, this is a good way for me to kind of get healthy without hurting myself. High dose vitamin C is another one that I kind of didn't stumble into initially because I had to do some real research before I really understood how it worked and what it did and, and how you would dose it. Um, the Reardon Clinic and in Japan, it's very common to, to use as a therapy, but um, what, if you do vitamin C in high enough doses, traditional vitamin C doses, a traditional dose of vitamin C, like 1,000 milligrams, 2,000 milligrams, that's an antioxidant and we all know that and that's why people take vitamin C. But if you do very, very high doses intravenously, it turns into a very heavy oxidant. In other words, it interacts with the iron in your system to create um, hydrogen peroxide, which is obviously an extreme ten oxygen tension on the, any, any unhealthy cells, as you might know, hydrogen peroxide, but your, your healthy cells are not harmed by it. So it's kind of a master way of getting in there. Um, and the dosing, which we can talk a little bit about if you want. It's tricky. I, it's got to be high enough to be therapeutic. And so we're t I, I was doing at one point 100 grams, which is 100,000 milligrams intravenously. I'm now down to 80. And I just monitor, you know, making sure I'm in that therapeutic range. I was doing that once a week. I now do that once a month, just as kind of a, you know, precautionary measure. So that's kind of the, so that was category one. Category two was, okay, what supplements might I be taking? And there I had to rely on uh, the studies of, you know, others that, and basically focusing on things that I didn't think would cause any harm to my healthy cells. And that would be perhaps either cytotoxic to the cancer cells or um, supportive of the healthy mitochondria so that they don't decide to go offline and become uh, cancer cells. And, and so there's, there's several supplements that kind of fit into that category. And so that was another thing I did. I obviously talked about the, um, the, the ketosis. Uh, the, I went into nutritional ketosis initially. And then when I got diagnosed, I went to therapeutic ketosis, which is just a higher level of ketones. I think there's some real serious therapeutic benefit to that for two reasons. And, and I know that it's difficult to do if, if someone's plant-based, but you can. You can be a plant-based ketogenic person. But that's probably the, would be the perfect diet, at least initially. Um, because that both plant sources and high fat, healthy high fat sources, not, not hydrogenated oils or anything unhealthy, um, we're talking saturated fats, uh, are very kind of low deuterium products and, and deuterium depletion is, is, is kind of the new frontier. Well, when I say new in the last year or two, uh, in the cancer research area, which is something that I kind of find, find kind of stumbled upon because I was speaking to a doctor who studied in that space at a conference in Florida, the Metabolic Therapeutics Conference. And I said, how could it be that you have a bunch of folks out there like Chris Quark and others who, who kind of follow this, you know, plant-based diet if you get diagnosed with cancer? And, and there's others who say, no, you have to do the ketogenic diet. I mean, and they both seem to be equally effective. And he said, well, they're both deuterium depletion diets. I think the added benefit you get from, from the latter, which is why I adopted that instead of plant-based is cancer loves glucose. And so the more you can do to get glucose out of the system, the less you're gonna be feeding cancer cells. And I know there's some people that say, well, all cancer cells are different. And I, I get that, I totally get that. 
And I know there's people, I mean, there's Tom Seifert even talks about it. There's other pathways. There's the glutamine is another source of energy. If they can't, if cancer cells can't get glucose and it's impossible to take glucamine on your diet. But if you can at least, you know, it's, 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 it's a way of reducing the proliferation of the cells if you can really starve them. So effectively you're cutting back on the food supply by going uh, very low, very low glucose. So you kind of monitor that. And so that was my diet. My diet was kind of a high fiber, moderate protein, ketogenic, high, high, high fat ketogenic diet. And then there's also this whole concept of, you know, sunlight and grounding and making sure that you're getting kind of, uh, and, and boy, oh boy, that's an area where I'm just, I'm just having fun right now because I'm in the process of putting a book together. And so I'm making a lot, I'm doing a lot of research in that space. And the more I research I do, the more fascinating I get by it. But for example, you know, grounding is something that people often talk about, but I don't know that they really understand why it's so important. And so there's a couple of books that I would, that I would point folks to. There's The Body Electric by um, Robert Beckert and Gary Selden, and there's another book called Healing is Voltage by, um, and I can send these to you, you can put it in the show notes if you want, Jerry Tennant, that talk a lot about this. But, you know, cells can only replicate, uh, heal themselves uh, and function normally when they have the right bioimpedance and the right voltage, microvoltage in this case. And the pH of the body is very heavily tied into this. And so grounding is a way of kind of help facilitate the corrective, getting you into the right state when it comes to kind of the voltage within your cells. I know we, we know that there's voltage in the heart. We know there's voltage in the brain. We know there's voltage in the nerves. Science doesn't really recognize that, but I think what these guys have found is that there clearly is voltage in the cells, a lot of it coming through the nerves. Um, and so those studies I think are just fascinating, but that's one of the reasons why getting sunlight, grounding, fresh air, these things are all ways of kind of increasing that cellular respiration and having the cells function the way they should. And I also should mention too, because this, this is probably an area that I think a lot of people are kind of, this kind of seems to be the hot topic now is this whole idea of fasting and intermittent fasting is very, is very popular. I think, and this is again, just based on my own experience, I have no way to prove this, but I firmly believe that one of the reasons why I got sick in the first place is because I was not allowing my body to go through the traditional redox or, or um, you know, ebb and flow, going back to the Wilhelm Reich, you know, this respiratory, you got to breathe out, not just keep breathing in, in that I was kind of feeding myself abundance of nutrients every single day without any break, without any fasting, without anything. And so now I do regular fasts to allow my body not only to kind of clean itself out through um, autophagy, which is, you know, I think necessary for a good cellular health, both intracellular and intracellular on both bases. But I also think it just kind of, it just, I don't know, it just, it gives your system a chance to kind of rebalance itself. And, and it's better able to kind of function the way it should. And so I think fasting is absolutely critical. Um, not everyone can fast and there are ways of kind of doing around that. There's a prolonged five day fast mimicking diet that Dr. Walter Longo um, has, has been a big uh, contributor to. So, I mean, I do think fasting is one of, one of the reasons why I was able to kind of get, get well quickly is because I incorporated fasting to get into the autophagy state. And also, it also obviously gets your ketone levels way up because anytime you're not eating, you're burning ketones. So 
the only time I've gotten over like five millimolars, which is very high, is when I'm in a fasted state. That is so fascinating. I have so many notes I want to follow up on. Um, I'm, I'd love to know a little bit more on what your specific fasting protocol looked like after the initial 10 day, because I've done now a seven day um, water fast and it felt amazing afterwards. My labs improved afterwards. Um, and you mentioned that you started with that. What did your fasting protocol look like through the progression of your recovery? And also, what does it look like now? Um, and in conjunction with that, I'd also love if you could go a little deeper and explain what redox is for someone who's not totally familiar with that term. Sure. Okay. Um, yeah, my fasting protocol right now is, I, I, I mean, I, there are people that will challenge me on the, whether this, in fact, is not a full 16 or 17 hour intermittent fast or sometimes 18, but it's usually 14 to 16 or 17. And that is, you know, I'll, I'll have dinner on Monday night and then I won't eat again until two o'clock on, on Tuesday. Right. So I go a period of time. So I'm compressing the, the window in which I'm consuming calories, but I do, this is the, the part I referenced when I said people will challenge me on is I, I quite often cause I'm a coffee addict and I know, I know it's not the best thing to have. It's high caffeine, but I love coffee. And so I do have my butter coffee. It's one of the vices that I continue. Uh, so I do have my, my bulletproof coffee with a little, with a little bit of hydroxybutyrate and butter in it as part of that. But then I also, I also overlay on top of that, like I do a, a, a three to five day fast. I think five days is kind of the magic number. If you, if you follow the work of Walter Longo, I think that's kind of where you'd like to be. Three days is great for autophagy, kind of, kind of gets you where you want to be. So I think what you did is perfect. The most recent one I did, I think was five days. And I do that. I was doing it every, every other month. And I think I'm now due for one because it's been a little over, I'm going on two months now. So I've been so busy. I just traveling and everything else. I do 24 hour fasts quite often, just just because I can and it's easy and sometimes it's it's convenient if I'm traveling, for example, and I just, you know, I don't want, or I'm too busy to, to think about making food. I'll have dinner and then I'll just wait until dinner again and just make sure I'm well hydrated. So that's my t- traditional, it's like, you know, 24 hour fast. Let's say I do that three days a month. Uh, intermittent fasting, I do every day, except maybe one one or two days a month or three days a month, I'll, I'll decide I'm gonna have some breakfast because I didn't have dinner last night. Um, you know, I, for example, yesterday, was it yesterday? Yeah, yesterday I had a really heavy lunch. And so I just decided, and it was a late lunch too. I decided I'm just not going to eat dinner. I just don't need it. And I didn't. So it kind of intermittent fasting is part of it. And then those more extended fasts. And in the second part of your question about redox, redox really ties in very closely with the Wilhelm Reich theories, which is all of life is based on movement. And it also ties into Chinese medicine, say the same thing. If you don't have movement, you don't have life. And to me, that's one of the challenges that, that modern medicine or traditional medicine faces is because what, what modern medicine does in a clinical setting, well, clinical trials, we can talk about the problems I see with so-called evidence-based medicine and clinical trials generally, but anytime you're doing something in a lab in vitro uh, or in a Petri dish, you don't have any real redox. You're just looking at something in a very static environment. And that's not the way life works. Life is ever changing. You're either, you're either moving forward, progressing, evolving, or you're, or you're devolving. That's just the way it is. There's no such, no such thing as static. And so anytime something is static, I think it necessarily is, is reverting to that from the PA bions to the T bacilli that Wilhelm Reich talked about. So you want to keep the ebb and flow going as much as possible. And there's several ways you do that. Obviously, 
movement is a big part of that because movement is necessary for, for the functioning of the lymphatic system. And that's, we didn't even touch on that, but I'm a, I'm a huge believer in the importance of the, the, the proper functioning of the lymphatic system in order for anybody to be healthy, but certainly somebody who, who might have cancer or better yet, if you're lucky enough to be destroying the cancer, to have uh, dead cancer cells in your body, you had better have, to have a good functioning lymphatic system to clear that stuff out. And so the best way to keep your lymphatic, the only way really to keep your lymphatic system optim, op, working optimally is to make sure you have sufficient movement because it doesn't have its own circulatory mechanism. It relies upon your body's ability to move and, and willingness to move and actual moving to, to do its job. So in rebounding, obviously skin brushing and lymphatic massage, and there are ways of kind of helping facilitate it's the functioning of the lymphatic system. But I think that's really, really important. Agreed. I've written about both of those, rebounding and skin brushing, and um, such a fascinating topic and so important when you're facing something more serious like that. This podcast is brought to you by SteadyMD. I've been using this company for the past year and I love them. Here's how it works. Instead of having a primary doctor that you have to make an appointment to see, wait for hours in the office to visit, you can now have your doctor available whenever you need him or her through your phone. SteadyMD has a staff of doctors who are available via call, text, or video chat whenever you need them so they respond quickly and they already know your medical history. You get paired with a single doctor so you can work with them as a long-term partner for your health. They're well-versed in lab testing, preventative health, and functional medicine, and they are great for those random, obscure, off-hours medical questions so you don't have to run to urgent care. You can check them out and see if they are right for you by visiting SteadyMD.com forward slash WM. That's S-T-E-A-D-Y-M-D.com forward slash WM. They do have limited spots available, so I check them out quickly if you're interested. This episode is brought to you by Crunchy Betty. It's summer and where I am, it is super hot and humid. I've always made my own deodorant and I still think that's an amazing option. It works well, but lately I've been so busy that I've been turning to a pre-made natural deodorant and I am loving it. It's called Kokomo Cream and it smells like a tropical vacation. Think coconut and lime in paradise. And it works incredibly well. My husband uses it too. We both love the scent and we love how fresh we stay all day. My favorite part, it's from a small family business and you can only find it right now on Etsy. So you can find it by going to etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash crunchy Betty. Again, etsy.com forward slash shop forward slash crunchy Betty. Um, you mentioned grounding too, and I'm with you. I don't think it's a fringe thing at all. I think it's something we're going to come to understand more and more, especially in the next few years. Um, but I'm curious how you accomplished this. Were you just simply spending time outside or were you, were there ways you were kind of able to hack this and to do this on a more consistent basis? Well, I'm just now trying something. That's a good question. Because I'm trying to figure out if there's a way to, to kind of biohack it. The way I was doing it initially when I got diagnosed is I literally would go down to the beach almost as much as I could. I try to go there every day. And during the week, I, weekends, it got real crowded. And fortunately, I don't live too far from the beach and I actually get in the ocean. Even in the wintertime, it's super cold because that really is that kind of t- your, total, your total grounding environment. Your entire body is completely surrounded by, by these negative charges. And the earth has a very slight negative millivolt charge, which is where your body wants to be to be healthy, which is kind of interesting. Our bodies are designed to kind of mirror exactly what the charge is. And if, if I have, you know, if I have too much positive energy in my system, 
okay? Which means um, my, 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 I have too many electron stealers in my system, i.e. free radicals, you know, molecules that are missing electrons, and I touch you and you have, you have a healthier state, we kind of balance each other out. So that's, that's obviously a, an easy, quick way to do it. Just walking barefoot, like when I go for a hike, I'll take my shoes off at the end of the hike and just get on the ground as much as I can. Um, you know, hugging a tree, there's several ways you can try to get negative energy from the earth directly. Um, but there are also kind of these, these PEMF devices, not, not the ones that are pulsing like the Beamer, which I think is, is not the one I'm referring to, but there's another one that uh, they had on demo at the conference, which I'm not going to speak on because I'm still researching. But these are ways where you can kind of at home try to create a healthier, you know, voltage state within your cells. Um, so those that don't have the ability to just go to the beach, I say just take your shoes off and go stand in your yard. Um, you can stand on a rock too, just don't stand on asphalt because asphalt is made with rubber and so it's, it's, it doesn't conduct electricity. Absolutely. I think that's a good rule of thumb for moms too. send your kids outside barefoot because not only are they grounding and hopefully getting vitamin D, but they're also getting bacteria from the soil. There's so many benefits there. And I'm 100% with you on the sunlight thing as well. Um, because I think most people understand the vitamin D connection and how we actually do need vitamin D. It's vital to like very so many reactions in the body. Um, and I've been saying that for years that I would actually say it's questionable the link between um, the sun and skin cancer, but we do know for sure that vitamin D, like low vitamin D levels are linked to a lot of other types of very serious cancers. So I think in some ways we've cut off our nose to spite our face with uh, avoiding the sun, but you mentioned the other benefits of it as well. I think that's also super important to keep in mind is um, the sun has so many properties that are beneficial just beyond vitamin D as far as um, the light itself and the cellular energy and all of that. So I'll make sure I link to all the books you mentioned. Yes, yes. And, and, and I think it might be fun for people to be also kind of think about it's, it's obviously it's, it's all fairly new science, but this whole fourth phase of water by Gerald Pollack, you know, the, what causes fluid to move in our, in, in our smaller capillaries is really not our heart. It's the same thing that causes sap to move up trees and it's, it's infrared light. And so uh, getting sun, I mean, getting infrared light, not actually the sun is a good source of that, but you get infrared all the time. Um, for, for folks who are, who are dealing with cancer because without vitamin D, you have no GCMAF. Um, GCMAF is a regulatory protein that supports the immune system um, by activating macrophages. And so it's binding proteins and, and receptors require vitamin D in order to be activated. So you really, really need to make sure your vitamin D levels are healthy. So if you can't do it through getting sun for whatever reason, because you live in northern latitudes, you can supplement. Um, and I also recommend that if you're supplementing, make sure you're getting vitamin K2 with the vitamin D. And there's several supplements that, that will put them both together. Because if you do vitamin D without K2, you don't get the full benefit. And it also helps keep the calcium from forming in your arteries, which is vitamin D also helps facilitate. You want to make sure the calcium is going where it, where it belongs. It's, it's in your bones and the calcium receptors in your cells. Yeah, definitely. And another thing we talked about the, that night we met that I'd love for you to go into if you're okay with it uh, mm -hmm. is the emotional side, because I think that's one that gets overlooked even by people who are very well researched and understand the science. And I think it's an easy one, um, especially if you're type A or a researcher like me to try to ignore. Um, I haven't ever faced like the serious conditions that you have, but I know in the last year, that's something I've had to face in my own life is realizing just how much emotions and our mental health impact our daily life in so many ways. And that you can't just uh, kind of push past those. You have to actually um, work through things and, and take that into account. But I'd love for you to explain um, 
basically how you got to that, what you realized about the emotional connection and, and then how you integrated that in your therapy. Yes. Well, let me um, give shout out to my partner, the Ch- Dr. Chinese Medicine. Um, he was no longer my partner, so I won't mention his name, but he's, he's the one who kind of really pointed, pointed me to the emotion, the crucial, the emotional factor for health generally. Um, and so that kind of really helped me understand that that was absolutely, I mean, if you just think about it, the impact that your, 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 when I say your mental state, I mean, not just your mind, I'm talking about your, how you feel about yourself and your relation to those around you in the world, the impact that that has on your health, I think anyone can recognize just intuitively, right? You don't need some doctor to tell you that. And um, what I discovered kind of uh, just, just based on my own experience that, you know, it, one of the biggest challenges that we have today is, is the stressors in our life. And there's several stressors and we all, everyone talks about stress as being the cause of disease. And I think there's some truth to that. But I think there's, um, you know, there's, there's kind of a misunderstanding as, as to how um, insidious stress really, different kinds of stresses can be. And there's different kinds of stress, right? There's, there's again, like acute stress, stress situations like a divorce or losing your job or getting in a car accident. And those can actually almost have a hermetic effect. In other words, if you approach them with the right mindset, they can actually make you stronger coming out the back end, um, just like your muscles get stronger when you tear them down by exercising. And I think that the, the stressors that I think are more um, impactful when it comes to, uh, or I should say detrimental to your health, are the, the, the ones that are kind of um, operate just under your conscious awareness. Things that are, you're kind of, that the stressors that where you're doing something and you know you should be doing something else. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's not having congruity between what you really would love to be doing and your passions and how you're living your life. It's, it's, you know, it's being in a relationship you're just not too happy with or staying in your job, you're not to, but you do it anyway. Those are the stressors that I think have a much bigger impact on your health because they're constant. And so I think the emotional detoxification side of this whole process, you know, there's, I call, I, I, I refer to detoxification on three levels, right? There's the, the internal physical detoxification, which we all know about, which is, you know, getting the detoxes out of your body through proper sleep and hydration, lymphatic system, et cetera. Um, then there's, you know, getting the chemicals and EMFs out of your, out of your system with their external de- detoxification. But this emotional detox is, the, is, I think, the most challenging. Certainly for me, it was, and I think for a lot of people, it is. And it, and it requires, that's the most important thing. That, to me, that's the, that's the linchpin for health. That's, I mean, all uh, th- nutrition, I call a foundational element. But emotional health or, um, you know, waking up in the morning, feeling good about yourself and feeling that you're really kind of living in congruity and you're, you're, you're being true to yourself and just being able to speak your mind with people. All these things, I think, are, are, are really important. And, and the analogy that I like to use is, and I really firmly believe this because I'm, I'm a, based on me alone, I'm an example of this, is you can, you can eat all the healthy food in the world. You can do everything right. You can be, you know, grounding every day and drinking spring water out of a glass bottle and getting all your electrolytes and breathing clean air and eating nothing but, you know, grass-fed meat or organic whatever um, and still get sick where someone else is, you know, going to McDonald's and eating fast food and, you know, they may not look great. They're, you know, they, there may be, you know, prices to pay because they're not as fit and trim as they might be if they're eating Kentucky Fried Chicken. But that person is just really happy about their life and, and really, you know, feels passionate about what they're doing. And they're going to have, I think, fewer really serious chronic health conditions. So 
I know that's kind of hard for people to swallow because most of the people that are kind of trying to be well are really focused on nutrition and that sort of thing. But I'm not saying nutrition is important by all means. That's, that's not what I'm suggesting at all. I think it's the foundation for health. But what I am suggesting is that you have to have this, you have to focus on the emotional side too. And, and, and this is also, I think, one of the things that I find was probably, and I know it's, it's difficult for me to say this to other people that are going through what I, what I went through, because not everyone kind of can see the world this way. Uh, and that is, I actually, my life is actually better now than it was before I was diagnosed with cancer. And the reason it's better now than it was is because um, my priorities are lined up and I don't, you know, I'm, I'm much better at not putting up with crap. I don't, I, don't, I don't know what I can say on your show. I'm just, you know, if, if something is not right, I get rid of it. If I want to do something, I do it. There's no more kicking the can down the road because I'm facing mortality. And it's that facing of your mortality that caused, causes you to be less tolerant of things you otherwise would tolerate that then create these, these underlying stressors, um, this incongruity in your life. And so I think um, if I could sell a pill that gave people that perspective, it, I, you know, it would be a very valuable thing for the world because it really made a huge difference for me. I agree. And I think that's why you hear of those occasional cases of people who find out they're terminally ill and they don't, they don't think there's anything they can do. So they don't change their lifestyle much other than they change their mindset and their emotions and they have to wrestle with their mortality and they maybe forgive people in their life who they have been holding grudges for and they like live each day in a more impactful, meaningful way. And then they magically go into spontaneous remission. And certainly that doesn't happen every time, but things like that really illuminate that emotional yes. connection. Yes, 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 yes. I completely agree. I completely, and anytime somebody says there was a spontaneous permission, the first thing that pops in my head is what you just said, Katie, is that they must have really had like enough of an, uh, of a, an Omi moment that they just kind of completely changed all that. And so that, that emotional detox part of the equation got cleaned up very quickly and effectively. Absolutely. And another point that you made um, about that when we spoke was about the community aspect and having solid relationships and friendships and support. Um, and I know that's something that as I've gotten older, I've realized the importance of as well. It's easy, I think, when you're young to think you can go it alone and be that lone ranger that just fights through everything. And I think as we get older, and especially as we face health challenges, we realize we truly do need other people and we need relationships and space to be vulnerable and people who can support us. And if it's okay for me to share, I, you talked about having a group that you you kind of get together with occasionally that's that support system for you. And I've done that in my life as well. Are you comfortable sharing any of the details of that? Cause I know. Yeah, from I'd be happy to, Cause this is another passion project of mine. And, and before I do that quickly, I'll just say that, you know, one of the interesting uh, anecdotal elements of having had cancer in the prostate region is for those that know Ayurvedic medicine is that the root chakra is a source of procreative and procreative energy. And that's where the, prostate is obviously procreative energy is you know reproduction and procreative is is getting out and you know and doing things you really want creating things in the world right it's creative but it's creative in a difference it's not reproduction it's 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 kind of producing out in your environment and doing creative things and i have for a long time wanted to kind of start a men's group because i just felt like it was so lacking in my life and and i read an article and i forget what magazine it was either men's health and men's fitness this is going way back and i wish i saved a copy of it and i didn't but the conclusion that was reached in that article is that and it's interesting because they talked about how there used to be men's groups you know they had the lions club and the elks club and the knights of columbus and all these men's groups but that's that that, that was my my grandfather's generation right so and 
Um, so that's quite a while ago. And they don't, those groups don't exist anymore. And I think it's important for men to spend time with other men. And so that's kind of something I was very, very interested in and never really did anything with. I just kind of thought about it and I toyed with it. And finally, this is, I don't know, uh, seven months ago now, I had a friend of mine who had a similar passion and we met at a men's group up in Seattle that I went to where there was eight of us in a room and we kind of got to really get to know each other over a weekend. Um, you know, he was coming into LA from Canada where he lives. And I said, look, I'm just going to invite a group of guys and we're going to talk about, you know, you know, there's a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy by Dr. Glover. And that's kind of the nexus of, of a lot of the stuff that he and I were working on in Seattle. And so we, I invited a group of guys. It just, it just, it, it had traction almost immediately from, from folks that I didn't even think would be interested, you know, in a men's group. And we've been meeting once a month for two hours at my house. And, you know, it's just an opportunity for, and I keep it small. It's six, six, we keep it at six, maybe seven, because sometimes we have no shows. Um, we keep it small and it's just an opportunity for us to just sit down in a room together and just talk about what's important to you and, and, and just share it with others. And I think, I think, and I, you know, again, I'm not a woman, so I can't speak for you, Katie, or, or women, but I think women are more naturally inclined to be open and talk about these, these things. Men are not. And so if your only source of feedback, if you will, from uh, whatever you're struggling with emotionally is your significant other in your life, you know, I don't think you can necessarily bring the healthiest masculine dy dynamic to that relationship. You need to be able to spend time with other men that will help get you your balance and then you can come back with a more health healthy masculine perspective. So that's kind of, and I, I just love it. And I, and I now, you know, now I'm an open book. I used to have a lot of secrets. You know, there's a great, there's a great saying in 12 step, you're only as sick as your secrets. And I was the guy back, certainly back when I was in New York, I had tons of them. Um, and now I have none. I'm a complete open book. So, you know, I just lay everything out. And I tell you, it's so liberating and I feel so much better. And again, that was another source of stress. I think you're so, so right. And I agree with you that it's easier for women or maybe we're just slightly more wired to build that community and to get together and talk. Um, or maybe it's just the way society has things right now. I don't know, but I think it's harder for men. But I also fully agree with you. I think men need it just as much. We all do. We're human. So right. for all the women listening, I would say I'd encourage you for your significant others to make space for that and to encourage that. Um, because like you said, you're going to have a better spouse at the end of the day when they have strong relationships with other guys and they have a support system. And it takes so much pressure off when we're not the only support for our right. vice versa. That's right. So I know yeah. we're also going to get questions. I want to make sure I touch on this. Um, did you do any of the like chemo or conventional cancer treatment in conjunction? You mentioned that you work with an oncologist. Did you do any of that or was he mainly overseeing and checking levels and watching the progression? Well, the only thing that I, I well, there's a new treatment program that's, uh, well, I don't know how new it is, but it's new to my, my clinic, my, the hospital I go to here um, called Provenge, which is kind of an immune therapy treatment, which I did. I don't know. I have no idea whether it has any impact there, unfortunately, in the in the Western medical space, there's there's not very good ways of monitoring the progression of your disease other than through the traditional CT scan, MRI. So I I have done, you know, I've done the MRI just to check on things. But the problem with that is it only it only indicates the late stage of the condition. So, and this I'll answer your question in a second. But before I do that, the when you by the time something shows up on a CT scan or an MRI, it's really the symptom of a disease. To me, that I call the disease cancering, like a verb. Like your body's been cancering for a long period of time, 
to the point where these cells you've accumulated enough to be able to, to show up on one of these scans. And so, um, but the, the only thing that I've done is, is, and this is specific to prostate cancer, is androgen deprivation uh, treatments, which are, I mean, they're not pleasant and, I, and I, they're not awful. The nice thing about them, and the reason why I didn't have any hesitancy doing them, aside from the fact that I needed to do it to get my prostate to, to go back to its normal size, which it's been ever since, thank God, um, is, and I could urinate well, have healthy urine flow, but is it shuts down the production of testosterone in your sex hormones. It, it's they also call it chemical castration. So that's the only standard of care I did. You, for those of your listeners who might know someone who, or their father or their husband or folks that they know have, are struggling with prostate cancer, uh, you should talk to your oncologist about this because I'm, I'm not a doctor, but you can cycle on and off of that. You don't have to stay on. I know they tell you you should just take it for the rest of your life. That's not true. I've done a lot of research on PubMed, and there's several clinical studies that have been done by the major pharmaceutical companies, and they came to the conclusion in the studies that there is no real adverse impact in doing it. There's no benefit to doing it, but no adverse impact to doing it. And I, I beg to differ with them because I think if you really understand how the body functions, that sex hormone and testosterone in particular is necessary for, um, for the you know, re, 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 regeneration of your bones. And so, you know, you don't want to be in a situation later in life where you're going to uh, suffer from osteoporosis. You want to be able to cycle on and off. Plus, it, it affects your sexual energy and your sexual drive and other things, too. Um, so that's the only thing I did in the standard of care category. I was, obviously, if I talked to a radiologist, they would want you to do radiation treatment. And that was, that was and continues to be recommended to me by, or not anymore, but during my course of my disease um, addressing the disease, it was, it was constantly recommended to me was radiation treatment. The oncologists will typically recommend um, chemotherapy, but uh, I just, that's the only thing I do is ADT. Good to know. And I love your perspective on this so much because I feel like just as in business, it's one thing to learn from someone who is a professor of business, who's research business. Um, it's another thing entirely to learn from someone who actually owns a business and does the day to day. I feel like it's one thing and we should learn from the people who research this and who have the scientific knowledge, but it's such a unique perspective that you bring to the table having actually been through it and now on the other side and, and being able to test on yourself what works and what doesn't work. Um, you mentioned a couple things for people who maybe are struggling with this. And I actually have gotten email even from people on my team who have a relative who is going through this right now. So I'd mm -hmm. love as we start to wrap up, what kind of advice would you give to someone who was just diagnosed with the disease to begin with? Well, the first thing I would say is, you know, talk to your doctor. First of all, find a doctor you think you can work with. Uh, and, and then speak to your doctor about, you know, get a, get a sense yourself because the problem with the medical system, and this is, this is true for both traditional medicine and alternative medicine, is the amount of attention you're going to get is very, very minimal. And what the condition you're facing is, is, is going to require a tremendous amount of focus and dedication and lifestyle change. And so you're not going to be able to sit down with any one doctor who you may, may, may be the most well-intentioned, best doctor in the world and really be able to decide what, what's right for you. So it's really, I think, incumbent on each of us who are going through this to kind of decide that we're gonna take the bull by the horns and, and really you know, decide what's gonna make the most sense. And I think if you approach it with that perspective and also with the no matter what, I'm gonna do whatever it takes, I think you need, to, the next thing I would say is you need to kind of get yourself in the right headspace, which is 
I can beat this. This is not, this is nothing more than my normal cells having converted to an abnormal form of energy production in a certain segment of my body that my body's really designed to address, but for whatever reason hasn't been because everyone has, you know, everyone's body is producing cancer cells all the time. The question is, are those cancer cells being addressed by the immune system or not? And so I think if you can kind of get your head around that and kind of understand that healing is, uh, is possible, it's going to make the journey that much more effective because you're going to, it's the, the placebo effect. Um, it's very, very strong, just like a nocebo effect is. Like the doctor tells you, look, you're going to die in a year and you really believe it and you do everything the doctor says and then you end up dying in a year. He just basically put that in your head. So I'd say kind of getting a good doctor that you can work with and, and then assessing whether or not you need to jump because they're going to, you will be pushed into immediate treatment therapies, whether it's surgery or radiation or chemotherapy, whatever it is. And I'm not saying don't do it immediately because I'm not a doctor and it's not my place and that might be indicated. What I am saying is that it's up to each individual to decide for himself or herself whether or not it makes more sense to kind of take a breath, step back and decide, okay, I can, I can beat this. Let me, let me take, let me take a more measured approach. I'll keep those things in, in my arsenal. And if I need them, I'll do them, but I'm going to do them in a very kind of, you know, uh, I'm going to do them in a fashion where I really feel like I've done my homework. I mean, for example, if you have to do chemotherapy and you do a fast before you do chemotherapy, you will, you'll have extremely better result. Not only will the chemotherapy work better, but you'll have less impact on your healthy cells. Um, you know, there's insulin potentiation treatments where you can, they give you insulin and then they, they reduce your blood glucose level to, to such a low level that uh, you, you can hardly function. And then they inject low dose chemotherapy into your body with glucose and it's like a Trojan horse and the cancer cells basically suck it up. And so it has less of an adverse impact on the rest of your cells. So there are ways you can, I mean, if you step back and say, look, doc, these are things I want you to consider. Um, you know, I, I find that my doctor has been great because, you know, he, he knows that I'm all over this thing like a cheap suit and he's willing to work with me. So find, so find a doctor you can work with and then do your own homework. And I'm, I'm hoping the value that I bring to the conversation is, you know, allowing you to kind of get your bearings and providing an overview that would help facilitate kind of that doing your own homework side of the equation. Uh, and then of course, when I say fasting, if you can do it, if you're not, if you're, if you're diabetic, you have, a, I got an email, I get emails almost daily. I got one yesterday from London and the gentleman's mother had just been diagnosed with colon and bladder cancer um, or stomach cancer. I mean, really aggressive stuff. And I thought, oh my goodness, this is this is this is not a good situation. And she's a diabetic, and he said he wants her to do a 20-day fast. And I wrote him back. And I said, look, first of all, talk to your doctor before you do anything. I, I'm not going to give you any advice at all. I don't think she can do a fast. I don't think she can do any kind of a fast if she's got that condition. She's got that. You know, she's taking insulin and she's got diabetes. But you know, you might consider doing the mimicking fast or something else until you can get your balance of your blood sugar to the point where you can maybe you know, try some of the other dietary protocols. I mean, there's, there's just so many moving pieces. There's just so many. And, and they all kind of, I think, you know, there's some consistency to them. Um, you know, there's some that would apply regardless of whether it's a heart tumor cancer or a blastoma or a lymphoma or other cancer. But um, a lot of them are specific to the individual and their lifestyle. And what, what, what's your compliance going to be? Are you actually going to be able to do it? Right. Be realistic. Can I, am I going to be able to do hyperbaric? Am I not? If I'm not, okay, I'm going to try something else. What else can I do? 
Yeah, such good perspective. And um, I could literally talk to you all day. We'll have to do a round two one day, but I want to respect your time. So I have a few wrap up questions that are quick questions I always love to ask. One is what book has had the biggest impact on your life? I would say, oh boy, I've read so many great books. That is, I, I, I knew you were going to ask me that question and I, and I still struggle with what I should say. I would say I'm a big fan of um, David Hawkins and his Power Versus Force. He's written several books. A lot of his are just lectures that have been put into books. But I thought his Power Versus Force book was, I thought, and still remains to be a book that I can read over and over and over again. And it, every time I read it, I get something out of it. But for folks that are um, struggling with cancer, I would say, hands down, no question, it's Travis Christopherson's book, Tripping Over the Truth. That's just, that's just such a great book. Uh, he does such a good job and he's, he's not a, he's not a doctor. He's a medical journalist. And he just, I mean, his perspective is not siding with, you know, he's more, I think of a traditional medicine guy. Um, you know, he's not like a big guy who's pushing the proposing kind of alternative medical stuff, but he just does such a good job of giving you a perspective on kind of the history of the science and, and where we are and how we end up where we are. And it really helps you kind of see through it all and say, okay, this doesn't make any sense because I can see now where, you know, there's economic incentives, et cetera, for doing it. So I would say, you know, but if I had to just pick one book, you say, Eric, you're going to go living on an island, you can only bring one book with you. It'd probably be Power Versus Force by David Hawkins. I love it. Both of those will be in the show notes at wellnessmama.fm. Um, and what's, if you could magically infuse a piece of advice into everyone in the world, what would it be? I would say in order to be a healthy person, I mean, do all the other things that people talk about regarding sleep and diet. Um, but if you can find some means of getting congruity between your inner desires and passions and how you live your life, that is going to be the most healing thing you can do. I'm with you on that one. What's next for you, Eric? I mean, you've uh, already conquered law. You've cured cancer in your own body. What's next for you? <laughs> well, again, I don't like to use the word cure. I'm in, you know, I'm in remission. I'm in a healing state. And I want to stay there and I monitor myself regularly. I'm, I'm hoping to actually, I'm, because I spent a lot of time talking, I'm not an expert in any one of these areas, right? I just kind of synthesize, if I get the word out, uh, a lot of information. That's what I'm good at. So for example, I would love to get someone for the Reardon Clinic uh, to talk specifically about high dose vitamin C and what it may, means and why you do it and, and really kind of get into the weeds on that. So my goal is to see if I can do a podcast that's tailored to um, each of the treatment protocols I would obviously have Travis and, and Tom Seafreeth and others on, on the podcast. But I, that's, that's my goal to do that in the next three or four months to get that launched because I, I have, you know, a lot of information I get from these people and it would be great to be able to put that out in, to, for others who want to kind of hear it themselves. Uh, and then I'm in the process of writing a book and the book is going to really be what we just talked about as far as helping people get their bearings and kind of get, give them the right perspective so that and when they come to it and also to discuss to the extent I can. I know that I don't want it to be 800 pages, but to kind of discuss some of the, uh, the general, how you, how you overlay gen, once you come to the theories, how you then address the protocols and come to the right therapeutic interventions. I love it. And keep me in the loop. I want to make sure we share your podcast and your book as they come out. That's amazing that you're doing that. Um, but thank you so much for your time. I'm sure you're an incredibly busy person with everything you have on your plate. And I really appreciate you taking the time to be here and to share your story and your wisdom today. Katie, the pleasure is all mine. And I would love it if people who are interested in following the progress of the, both the book and the podcast, if they would just go on my website, can you do a plug for that? Absolutely. Okay. It's, it's quest to cure cancer.com. 
It's www.questtocurecancer.com. So you can subscribe there. And I'm, I'm collecting emails and I will be sending out announcements when I do postings and, and obviously keep people up, up to speed as to what's going on. But that I'm reachable there. Perfect. And I'll make sure that's linked in the show notes as well. If any of you are driving, you don't have to write it down. And um, those will be under your episode at wellnessmama.fm. And definitely we'll have to plan around two for when the book and the podcast launch and make sure we share you with the world some more. But thank you so much for being here. Katie, thank you so much. I appreciate it. And thanks to all of you for listening. And I hope to see you next time on the Healthy Moms Podcast. If you're enjoying these interviews, would you please take two minutes to leave a rating or review on iTunes for me? Doing this helps more people to find the podcast, which means even more moms and families can benefit from the information. I really appreciate your time and thanks as always for listening.